morning. Welcome to Trinity. Uh, my name is Sean. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here at Trinity, but I'm also uh, one of many elders. Um, and uh, we have the joy and privilege of, of leading in a way of shepherding us um, and coming before God. And I want to take a moment just to set, continue our time of worship and sell our hearts in a word of prayer. So if you would, uh, let's pray for a moment. God, as we come to you this morning, uh, we come thankful that you are our wonderful and merciful Savior. And I pray that you would give us hearts that love Jesus above all things. The one who lived the life that we could not live and died a death we deserve to give us the salvation we couldn't gain on our own. That Christ would be ultimate in our hearts and our affections and our lives. God, in the process of loving Jesus more, would you help us to hate the sin that so easily entangles and clings to our lives? Things that we struggle with, the fight against, the things that we succumb to. God, would you help us to hate those things? That bad attitude, those wayward thoughts, those motives for our lives that we live by that run against you. The kinds of things that we struggle with. Oh God, would you help us to see them for what they are? And to turn away as we turn to Jesus. And in that, God, would you help us to delight in the very thing that we're doing right now. And singing and praying and hearing your word and the fellowship that we share together. As we come to the table in a moment uh, of word, of, of bread and of cup. God, would you help us to delight in these. You have given these as gifts for our good. Uh, to to encourage us and to strengthen us and to equip us to live our lives following after you. So may they be true delights. May we not be bored or so easily distracted. May we not have a critical spirit toward the things that you have given to us. God, may we delight in them. God, I pray that as we do, we would have a growing love for your word, that it would be the thing that becomes so true precious to us, that it would be a treasure to us, that it would be sweet to us, that it would be encouraging to us, that we would read it, think on it, study it, delight in it, rely on it. And may all that be to our transformation and growth. May we grow more Christ-like, and as a result of that, may we be people eager to make much of you, make much of Jesus, make much of the gospel in our thoughts, our affections, our words, our actions. May we make much of who you are and what you've done. Now, as we come to your word, I pray that you would do a good work in us. I don't know all the conditions of the hearts that are here this morning, but you do. You do. And as we come to your word, may it be life-giving where there is death, and may it be renewing where there is weariness. May it be comforting for those who are hurting. God, would your word by your spirit do good work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Titus chapter 3. This week and next week, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through the very first couple of words of verse 8 this week. And then next week, we're going to look at verse 8 uh, through 11. But this, as a continuation of our series, The Significance of the Church, we're looking at the character of the church, and today we're going to be considering the gospel. The gospel is to characterize the church. 
And my hope is that it would bring timely encouragement, conviction where needed, comfort, and it would equip our hearts. So Titus chapter one, 3, excuse me, verses 1 through 8, first couple of words of 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. It's good words. Good words for us to hear. Good words, good sounds to fill our ears. So, I have a question. What is the most painful sound you have ever heard? The most terrible sound that you have ever heard in your life? If you're a kid, it may be the sound of that Lego creation that you spent hours working on falling apart. You know that sound, right? That, that crinkly, crashing sound of the Lego creation disintegrating into frustration. If you're a nursing mom, it may be any sound at all, really, that wakes that finally, just now, finally sleeping baby. doesn't matter what that sound is. It's the worst sound that you've ever heard in your life. Or maybe it was your breaks on the way to church this morning, that metal on metal grinding, reminding you, oh, I totally forgot again to schedule that. I think one of the most painful sounds to hear, and I mean this, is when an orchestra is warming up. It's just the worst. It's frenetic, it's chaotic, it's upheaval, and it's blasting into your ears, into your brain, all the way down, shaking your very soul. Every musician on that platform or in that pit is off in some world of their own, blaring out all kinds of sounds. It's maddening to hear. Maddening. I think it's especially jarring because... You know in about 10 minutes, all of those instruments will be played in such beautiful concert together. To hear that blaring when you get there is is unsettling. It's jarring. It's terrible. I think churches can get stuck in that orchestra warm-up chaos. They can make all kinds of noise, but none of it good. Churches can be blaring loudly about this and that, what they're against, but never really any sort of gospel melody. And sadly, all the pieces are there. They're all there for a beautiful concert, but everyone is off doing their own thing. The sound of a church can repel or attract. It can distract or beautify. It can be jarring or inviting. You know that orchestra, they knock off all their chaos when the conductor comes out. 
Moments later, beauty fills your ears. For a church, Jesus conducts. Jesus conducts by means of the gospel. And we as a church need to be attuned to what the gospel is, what it means for our lives and for our church, and how it leads us to make something beautiful. So I want us to wrestle with that today as we look at this passage and as we think about it. I want us to be a church that's characterized by the gospel, that it's not just something that we tack on to who we are, but it is who we are. And if it is who we are, then we need to realize that this gospel is changing us. It changed us and is changing us. It changed us from dead to alive, and it's changing us to be more and more like Christ. It's tuning us to that melody, if you will. And as the gospel changes us, I want us to see that the gospel changes a couple of things about us. One, how we see the world or the life that we have. How we go about looking at life. The gospel changes how we look at life. Radically changed. Secondly, the gospel changes how we live out life. Not just as individuals, though that's certainly a part of the application, but I'm really talking about us as a church. How the gospel changes how we look at life as a church, how we live it out as a church. So let's walk through that together. How we look at life. You know, the first word of our passage was remind. Remind. The verb remind is the imperative. It's, there are many imperatives in the passage. Imperatives are those command verbs. Those are the things that you are called to do. It's the main one for the section, really. Remind. The word means to cause one to remember. So Paul, who wrote to Titus, a church leader he developed and trained, an apprentice of his that released into ministry, He's writing to Titus to say, remind them, cause them to remember. Cause them to remember. Always be remembering. The context of the church should be a place where we're always remembering. And we're always causing each other to remember that which is of most importance. It's not a rote, zombie-like recital of the doctrines of the Christian faith. The idea of remembering is steeped deeply in the Bible. It's a very important thing for God, and it's a very important thing for God's people. The, the idea of remembering is significant. It impacts us in such a way that it's hitting our heads, our hearts, and our very lives. In Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus is is a furthering of, of, the, of the way that God's people were to form and function together. It's given during the period of time between Exodus and Promised Land. It's how the people of God were to function together in that Promised Land as being God's people. And God says in Leviticus, I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God and... I am the Lord. Remembering is a big deal for God. We always want God to be remembering. We don't want God to forget. The only thing God forgets is our sin. 
He remembers it no more. But everything else he remembers, all the promises and all the things that he purposed to do, he remembers. He never fails at remembering. Remembering is a big deal to God. And it's a big deal for his people. His people are to remember. Many of us are familiar with Exodus 20. It's where we get the Ten Commandments. And we sometimes reduce the Ten Commandments of like these things that we should do because we know we ought to. And, and we lose sight of, of the scope and the significance of them and the beginning. Before we get into the Ten Commandments, God's remembering and causing them to remember that he was the one who brought them out of slavery, out of the place of Egypt. Then he tells them about what it looks like to be his people. God remembers his rescuing work and he wants his people to remember their rescue, their redemption, before we start talking about how we live in light of it. Remembering is a big deal. And when God's people stop remembering, bad things happen. There's a whole book of the Bible just describing the bad things that happen when God's people stop remembering. It's called Judges. It's a, it's a hard read. It's a sad and hard read. And in Judges 8.34, sort of a repeated phrase that happens throughout the entirety of the book, we find this, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And in that failure to remember, they start clinging to fake gods, and they start asking these fake gods to be real to them. And then they start doing terrible things. They do awful things in the book of Judges. And then terrible enemies, worse than them, rise up and crush them. And they cry out, oh God, where are you? And God graciously and mercifully rescues them yet again. And then the cycle repeats itself again and again and again. Remembering is a big deal. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2. When we studied Ephesians last year. Remember that you were once, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a terrible description. No hope and without God. Goes on to say, but in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been now brought near. We're to remember these things. Remembering is crucial to keeping the main thing the main thing, to believing rightly about God, to living out his purposes in our lives as a church. Failure to remember leads to all kinds of horrible consequences. And that is the chief call of our passage. It said to Titus, go about causing them to remember, but the, like, the implication is just as imperative. Be a remembering people. Be a remembering people. And what do we need to remember? We need to remember the gospel. We need to be a remembering the gospel kind of people. And we need to remember how the gospel changes how we see. The gospel changes how we see. We can't lose sight of that. Literally, I mean that word play. We can't lose sight of how the gospel changes how we see. And there are three things the gospel changes how we see. Changes how we see God, changes how we see ourselves, and changes how we see the world. So we're going to look at our passage from the bottom up. We're going to start in verses 4 through 8, and then we're going to work backwards, if you will, to the top, to the beginning. So first is, the gospel changes how we see God. Let's look again at what is described 
been attributed to who God is, what he is like, and what he has done. Verses 4 through the very beginning of verse 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. So the gospel changes how we see God. Changes how we see him. First in who he is, who God is. Our passage says this very explicitly about God. God, our Savior. Who is God? Our Savior. Our Savior. Of all the true and, and, and immeasurably great things that could be said of God, Paul is drawing the attention here to God, our Savior. Our Savior. No one else could bring about actual Full, final, and forever salvation had to be God. No one else could do it. And only God can bring about actual, full, final, and forever salvation. Not halfway salvation. Not 97%. You just got to give that 3% bump. No curve in salvation. Actual, full salvation. God, our Savior. Our Savior. Our. You see that there too? Our Savior. This is real, actual, personal salvation for us, as in we, His people. It's not arbitrary salvation. It's not maybe salvation. It's just out there. But actual, real, personal salvation. God, our Savior. Our passage that we are looking at, even though in your English translation has it at the very beginning of verse 8, the expression, the saying is trustworthy, is actually talking about what came before it. It swings into the implications that come after it, but what is trustworthy is all that we just had read in verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8. All that is said about who God is and what God does is trustworthy because God is faithful. It's worthy of trust, all of your trust. If God is our full salvation, our whole Savior, He is worthy of all of your trust. Because God is faithful always. He promised it and purposed it, accomplished it, and applies it to our lives. He is Faithful in every way. He is worthy of your trust. Trustworthy means he is worthy of your trust. And it's God alone who is worthy of all of your trust. The world offers you a lot of things to put trust in. Some of those things are good and some of those things are less than good. But the world offers it to you. They're not worthy of all of your trust. Only God is. Because God is worthy, therefore God is worth it. Because God alone is worthy, God alone is worth it. What do we learn about who God is? What are we to be remembering? What are we to be reminded of again and again? God is our Savior and is worthy of our trust. 
We have a lot of things that we experience in life. Some of those things can be very hard and harsh. That want to run counter and, and make us believe things that aren't true. And as we wrestle with those things in our lives, sometimes it's our own sin. Sometimes it's the sin of other people. And we feel the pull away from looking at God as our Savior, worthy of all our trust. And so we need to be a people who are reminding one another, causing each other to remember all that we have read so far. All that is said of God and who he is and what he does. And that naturally leads us to remember what God does, not only who he is, our Savior, who is trustworthy, but what God does. I mean, just take in that description that you see there. But, like, think about it. In those verses, we see that God brought forth into time and history his goodness and loving kindness. Not abstract ideals, but actually invaded time and space and history. He saved us, it says. A people far and lost and dead with hearts hardened toward him. And he saved us not because we cleaned ourselves up and got ourselves right. He saved us in the midst of our lostness and our farness and our deadness and our heart-heartedness. According to his own mercy. He made us alive. And he renews us again and again by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Goes on to say, he poured out his grace on us in rich measure through Jesus Christ. And he made us right in his sight. We who did nothing right to warrant his sight, he made us right in his sight by his rich, overwhelming grace. He made us heirs of eternity by giving us eternal life in Christ. Why would we want to forget any of that? Why do we forget any of that? That's staggering. Is it not staggering? Do you not just read that and hear that afresh and think, this can't be true. This is too good to be true. And yet it's the truest of all truth. (coughs) Remembering the gospel together keeps before us the significance of, And the scope and the sufficiency of who God is and what God does. And as we think this, and as we remind each other this, and as we remember this together, you know what it's going to do and continue to do in us? It's going to help us grow at being happy and humble and holy and hopeful people. It's changing us. Keep that in mind. It changes us by making us alive And then it's going to help us grow at being happy people, humble people, holy people, hopeful people. We'll come back to that expression, those expressions in a moment. So the gospel that we are to remember is changing us and it's helping us to see God differently. Helps us to see ourselves differently. Now let's, as we're working from the bottom up, let's look at verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. We find together here with verse 3 into verse 4, another one of Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter, 
He wrote 13 in the New Testament, and you'll find often in his writings a, a for once, but now. For you were this, but now this. And he does that intentionally with great effect. It makes us remember, for one, who God is and what he has done in our lives. And it also helps us to see ourselves rightly. So we are sinners, now saints. We are lost, now found. We are dead, now alive. Far off, brought near. Orphan, but now a child. Without hope, but now with a living hope. This dynamic throughout the writings of Paul and in the New Testament are crucial for us. And we need to remember these things so that we see ourselves rightly. The gospel changes how we see ourselves. We were once something. It's a list of seven things here. We were, and, there, and it's like a slippery slope going down. Each one kind of cascading into the next, getting worse. The first starts off by saying we are foolish. The Bible uses the word fool or foolish to designate someone who lives as if there is no God. A fool in the Bible, we might use the fool for a variety of reasons. Some silly and, and childish and others maybe more seriously. But the Bible uses the word fool to describe someone who doesn't think there's a God. Uh, Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Can't find a better explanation for the way the Bible uses the word fool than that. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We once were a fool. Living and believing and acting as if there were no God. Next thing it says, we're disobedient. So in light of that, we live in rejection of anything about God. Anything about his worth. Anything about his ways, his works, his word. We don't, we don't even care. We just live however we want to live in disobedience to anything that is God. And in that disobedience, we get to go off on these offshoots and paths in this world. And it says then we are thirdly led astray. When we live as if there is no God, our hearts will be swindled by options in this world. When we live as if there is no God, our hearts will indeed be swindled by the options of this world. We'll be led astray. And once led astray leads us to the fourth, we become slaves to various passions. So once swindled, we're trapped. We're unable to break away from that which now grips our hearts. We're, we're trapped. This is how we once were. The gospel helps us see ourselves rightly. In that trapped, slave to various passions, we find that it just sort of simmers and boils in our hearts. We pass our days in malice and envy. We now look at life with contempt. Bubbling in us, simmering away in us malice. Boiling over the pot, our envy of others who played the world's game better than we did. And we just get getting worse, this verse. But the gospel helps us see ourselves rightly, what we once were. We were hated by others. Because of this characterization, we are hated by others. Our bad attitude incites the bad attitude from others. And in turn, lastly, seventh, we hate other people. It should be no surprise to see the output of such a life to be one of hate. Yet, yet, we who believe in Jesus Christ are made alive by His grace and are no longer these things. 
So we can look at them truly and actually and say we were once this, but because of God's grace, we are now this alive. We are no longer this list solely because of the grace of God. That means then for us, that list doesn't paint a very happy picture, does it? It doesn't paint a very humble one, does it? certainly doesn't paint a holy one. And it sure doesn't paint any picture that gives me any kind of hope. So the gospel then becomes our means of being happy and humble and holy and hopeful, even in a world that is hard, where evil is real. Something greater has come into our lives. And taken our heart of stone and removed it and gave us a heart that is alive. We are happy and humble and holy and hopeful people because of the gospel. Now, we're going to experience varying degrees of that. So it's not all happy, all humble, all holy, all hope, all the time. Don't hear me wrong. There are growth and, and ups and downs in that experience. But our means for it is the very same as what brought us life. So the gospel changes the way we see God and changes the way we see ourselves and it changes the way we see the world. So now let's look at the very first two verses. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So when we look at the world around us through the lens of the gospel, we see it very differently. And the lens of the gospel doesn't create an us versus them perspective. Keep in mind, Paul wrote in the day when following Christ did not carry any sort of cultural benefit. In fact, it usually carried extra cultural baggage. It didn't really go well, culturally speaking, societally speaking, for those who are Christians. The instruction that he has given came in the midst of a world that was incredibly hard and evil and against. And he's saying, hey... Live out your life like this. Look at the world like this. Live it out like this. Now, it's very important because he's not giving, he's, his, his instructions are avoiding two errors. One is fight and one is flight. Sometimes we want to fight against the world. We want to make it an us versus them. We want to get into the culture wars. Sometimes we want to flight. We want to run to our cul-de-sacs and our bubbles and never be touched by the world around us. Paul's instructions don't fit to either one of those. His instructions, rather, are that we are to engage the world around us. We are to engage the world around us. From that list in those verses 1 and 2, and really how the passage flows, our chief engagement with the world around us is not through necessarily through programs and services. Our chief engagement with the world around us is living out a happy, humble, holy, and hopeful life. Whatever you do, wherever you live, to live out a happy, humble, holy, and hopeful Christian life. Now, we went from the bottom up to the top of the passage. But just let's look at the flow of the passage from the top down. Live in this way in the world, he starts off. Remembering you once lived like the world around you, 
but in God, but God in his grace and mercy, he has saved you. When you see the flow of the passage from top to bottom, we find purpose and motive and means. The purpose is that we live out a gospel-shaped life in this world. The motive is that people are lost without the gospel. We know that all too well. We know the experience of that lostness, or we once were. Means, but the very grace that rescued you is going to be the grace that makes it all the more possible for you to show and put on display what a gospel-shaped life looks like. The means is that God's grace will be sufficient. Purpose, live out the gospel-shaped life. Motive, people are lost without the gospel. Means, God's grace will be sufficient. And we are to remember this. We are to not forget it. Changes the way that we look at life. Changes the way we look at God, ourselves, and this world. And it changes the way that we live out life. Changes the way that we live out life. Three ways I want to highlight. One, we get to delight in the gospel. Two, we get to display the effects of the gospel. And three, we get the wonderful privilege of declaring the gospel, the content, the hope of the gospel. We get to delight in the gospel. As a church, we are to keep the gospel near and dear to all that we are and all that we do. When we gather, we need to know that the gospel encourages our worship. The more we keep it present, the more we remind and remember the significance and the scope and the sufficiency of who God is and what God has done, we find our hearts eager for worship. We want to delight in God when we get together. We come anticipating, gathering together to delight in the God who has rescued us from this life we once lived and has brought us into this life we would never have been able to get on our own and is changing us as we live it out. We want to delight in the God who is worthy and worth it. As we gather, it's not only in worship, but the gospel equips our community. We are to cause each other to remember who God is and what he has done. When we gather together and we do what we're doing, when we gather in homes for life groups or when we serve in ministries, when we're in a coffee shop across from one another, we are re- helping each other remember these things. And our community deepens as we delight in the gospel together. And it's there as we scatter. So when we gather, we, we see that the gospel encourages our worship and equips our community. But when we scatter, the gospel empowers our mission. As we delight in all that God has done for us in the gospel, it empowers us for mission. We aren't engaging the world as a fight or retreating from the world in flight. Rather, because of the gospel, we engage the world around us on mission. It means a couple of things. We want to better understand the world around us so that we can see the ways in which the gospel connects. The world is longing for something. The world around us, people that are living out their lives around us, are longing for something that only the gospel supplies. Connect with those longings. Help show how the gospel fulfills it. And those things that they're pursuing can't and won't. The more we delight in it, the more we see those connections. Sometimes we will look around and we'll, as we better understand the world around us, we see how the gospel counters. Maybe they do believe entrenched in certain things. That the gospel counters those beliefs. Or maybe we find that 
We look around the lives in our world and we see a lot of ache and a lot of brokenness. The gospel brings ultimate comfort to such ache and such brokenness. We can offer that. Whether it's connecting or countering or comforting. We have it. And the more we delight in it, the more we see those connections and the ways it counters and the way it comforts. Those who are lost, those who are fallen. So we delight in the gospel. We live out our lives delighting in it. Secondly, we want to display the effects of the gospel. Gospel-shaped living puts the effects of the gospel on display for the world to see. We're to remember and remind each other that the gospel shapes how we live. Again, look at verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be, made, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. There are seven ways listed there, of the countless ways in which the gospel shapes us. Seven are listed. Seven, be submissive to authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Seven. Basically, in short, don't be on social media. That's how I would interpret that. I'd summarize that paragraph. Don't be on social media. But don't miss the not happy coincidence. But note how that seven corresponds to the list of seven in verse three. The world displays the effects of living as if there is no God. The Christian life counter is countercultural, displaying the effects of the gospel. This can certainly create tension when two worlds collide. It doesn't necessarily mean it needs to create conflict. It certainly can create tension. But if you were looking at that list again in your Bible, verses 1 and 2, what's, what, are, what stuck out to you? Simple. Be kind in the world in which you live. Don't be a jerk. Don't create unnecessary obstacles. Right now, the world around us is decidedly post-Christian. Doesn't really care what Christian faith has to say about anything. It's individualistic. The center of the story is the person. It's anti-institutional. There's a growing distrust. The younger the generation, the higher the distrust of the institution, whatever that might be. And that world around us, around the church, just looks at church as anything from Catholic to Protestant, from Baptist to Pentecostal, from Lutheran to whatever, Moravian. Just lumps it all together. And the world around us looks at the church and mostly thinks it sounds like Donald Trump. Stop and think about that for a moment. The world that's lost, dead in sin, lumps the Christian faith with a political figure. I don't really care about the politics. It's not even about the politics. The Western, post-Christian, individualistic, anti-institutional world assumes that Christians adhere to Trump. No one in this room should be okay with that. 
Because of the conflation of ideologies into a single identity, the witness of the church has been severely harmed. No one cares what you have to say. Over the last eight years, the church has been stuck in the orchestra warm-up chaos, blowing this horn and that horn. All those who are without God and without hope have left the building altogether, never to go back. Yes, the gospel can and does offend those who are living self-centered lives. Our manner of living is not to be offensive. Verses 1 and 2, see to it. We are to live in a way that Paul says earlier in Titus 2.5. We are to live in a way that the word of God may not be reviled. Or like what he says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That applies to us today. As one commentator put it on these verses in 1 and 2 of chapter 3. It says this about the early church. In this way they will commend the gospel. And put no unnecessary obstacle in the way. Is our manner of living creating an unnecessary obstacle. From us displaying the gospel. In a world so desperate, desperately seeking something, and we have it, but they don't care. My concern is that the church broadly stays stuck in the echo chamber of that chaos. uh, My concern more specifically about Trinity is that we would get stuck in inactivity. Gospel changes us. How we look at life and how we live it out. When we live out being happy, humble, holy, hopeful lives, we actually bring good into the world around us. We bring good into the world in which we live. This good counters the way the world functions, and it serves as a gospel disruption to those who are in sin. And there is no better disruption for anyone than to to be countered by a life that is displaying the effects of the gospel. Certainly this is a slow and steady and an intentional approach, but it's going to be fueled by our own delighting. How do we go about displaying? We display as an overflow of our delight. Now, there comes a point where we need to be ready to declare the hope of the gospel. And the process of that is this. The more we delight in the gospel, the more our lives display the effects of the gospel, the more we will know the gospel. And this will give us opportunity to say the gospel. Showing the effects of the gospel will give the opportunity to say the content of the gospel. I love 1 Peter 3.15. Some of you are probably really familiar with it. But I love how it captures this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, For a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
We find delight and display and declare all in that verse. Delight in the gospel. That is, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. Display the effects of the gospel. The hope that is in you. It's noticed. They're getting asked, why are you so hopeful? And be ready to declare the gospel. Always be ready to give the reason. Which is why we need to be a reminding, remembering people. Reminding, remembering our delight. Reminding and remembering what our lives are to display. Reminding and remembering what to declare. So friends, church, know the gospel. May we be a church that knows it, delights in it, displays it, declares it. If you don't know the gospel well, it's camp out in verses 4 through 7 of Titus chapter 3. Be intentional to remind and remember and rehearse together. When we gather, gather together anticipating gospel refreshment for our souls. Talk about it together. Talk about it while you serve. Talk about it in a life group. Talk about it at a coffee shop. For living out the life that we have been rescued to will enable us to delight in, display, and declare the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. So do we want to be a people in the way or pointing the way? Do we want to be a people in the way Others coming to know the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. We want to be a people pointing the way, leading the way to the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. The conductor is standing before the orchestra. It's not me. It's Jesus. Trinity is Jesus' church. The gospel taps the music stand. As a musician in an orchestra pit, will we look up? Stop the noise and tune our instruments to the melody of the gospel. May it be so for Trinity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And as it finds a home in our hearts, I pray that it would bring life where there isn't any. That it would bring encouragement where it is needed. It would bring conviction and comfort. It would do a good work in us. May we be a people that are all the more inspired and encouraged to be a remembering, reminding kind of people. Help us to look at life differently through this lens. Who you are and what you've done. How it's changed us. How it's changed the way we see this world. Enable us then to be a people who grow at delighting genuinely display and are eager to proclaim and declare your goodness and loving kindness in the gospel. This we ask in Jesus' name. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Would you please stand as we prepare for communion together? Thank you. 